Welcome everyone to another episode of Where's This Going? Before we get started, I need to thank my sponsor, U.S. Wellness Meats. At U.S. Wellness Meats, they offer beef, lamb, bison, and dairy products that are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. They also offer pasture-raised heritage pork, free-range poultry, and wild-caught seafood. U.S. Wellness Meats has over 400 all-natural whole foods in their online store at uswellnessmeats.com. All of their foods are raised on family farms dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles. They do not use any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. The owners are the farmers themselves, and they supply nutrient-dense, all-natural foods to professional football and baseball teams, colleges, individual athletes at the highest levels of every single sport, health professionals, respected gourmet chefs, fine dining establishments, and families all over the country in every single state, Canada, Puerto Rico, are just looking for the best food on the planet. Use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for 15% off store-wide savings at uswellnessmeats.com. And my next guest is a restaurateur in New York City. He is partnered with the Lambs Club, Cafe Clover, Jimmy at the James, and the Skylark. In the past, he was also involved with nightclubs and bars, including Lotus, the Double Seven, the Rex, and Union Bar. He has incredible stories from all of his businesses, including his times in Russia. He is a fascinating man. Please give it up for my next guest, David Rabin. David, thank you so much for uh, coming on. My pleasure. We made it happen. Fun to be in Park Slope. Yeah. <laughs> a little education for me. So as I, as I told you before, I like to get things started with a little tidbit or a story about yourself that the world doesn't know from what's already out there. Mm, okay. Uh, since you know, or I think you know my origin in nightlife story, uh, I was the best Jewish quarterback at Tufts University <laughs> in 1983. We won the uh, school intramural championship, and I think I might have taken more pride in that than four years of varsity lacrosse. Wow. Because we, uh, we beat all these teams that everyone said, they have no shot, and we, we, uh, we managed to do it. That's so. a proud moment. Um, yeah, I was, not, I was not expecting that. <laughs> I could throw the ball. I'm not very fast, but I could throw the How's ball. How's your arm now? Still good. We just can't find a field to play. It's uh, once they redid the Great Lawn, they wouldn't let us play there anymore. So uh, it's a shame. I want to play with Ty, yeah, my son, because uh, you know he's as you know how big he is now. I want to play with him. You he's know. he's huge. He's huge. <laughs> <laughs> so um, also, so so for people that don't know, um, we want to give a little bit of background on you. And I, I, we talked about it a couple minutes ago. I want to let you kind of take it away and how you got into the restaurant nightlife business um, because I think it's a fascinating story and I think it's better to hear it from you than from me. Uh, it's uh, quite accidental, uh, to be honest. I mean, we were very social always. Um, my house at, at, you know, at Tufts was sort of known as the house that had the best party every year to kick the school year off. Um, I live with five other guys, all of whom are literally doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs kind of thing now. But we all sort of ran around campus and were very social. We used to have this amazing kickoff party. And um, 
you know, then I did what you're supposed to do. You know, I went to law school. I hated every second of it. Thought about trying to go to Harvard Business School. Uh, ran into, took classes up there and realized people had seven, eight years of real work experience. And I was like, whoa, you know, I don't know anything. And I happened to run into my valedictorian for my class at Tufts, who was the smartest kid I'd ever met in my life. And I, I ran into him and I, on, on, at, at, in Cambridge and I said, hey, Steve, how's it going? And he's like, wow, it's so hard. I was like, whoa, <laughs> last thing I expected to hear from him. Um, so, you know, I kind of went back, finished law school, joined a firm, um, sort of a prominent real estate firm uh, in New York, small but well-regarded, small by New York standards, 100-something lawyers. And uh, I really think I got the job because I could play shortstop, honestly, um, <laughs> <laughs> on the summer softball team. And, uh, and you know, it was going along fine. And then this um, young guy showed up at the office one day and uh, after hours, and I, I was on a floor that had a, uh, uh, an annex floor, so I had to let him in. And young, handsome black guy, maybe 20 years old, I was all of 26 or something or 27, and he had on his jacket... Uh, it said Warner Brothers, and it said, I'll be sure. And I, I, for whatever reason, instead of doing, hi, how can I help you? I said, come on, man, you're not, your mom didn't name you, I'll be sure. And he laughed, and I laughed. I had no idea who he was. Um, and when he left, I went to the partner, and I said, who is that guy? And he goes, he's about to drop an album, be Sony's Artist of the Year. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, I'll do it. What, I'll work weekends. And the guy was, the partner at the time was my, my age now, approximately, had three young kids. He was like, I can't go to the Apollo, you go. I, you know, So I just accidentally started getting sent to all these amazing events as Al's lawyer, even though I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, uh, you know, it was, I was honest with Al about that, like, I need help here. But, uh, you know, he was a, kind of a one-hit wonder. He's a wonderful guy. He's now, I believe he's a radio DJ, a very prominent one in L.A. Um, but it started putting me back in a social circle that I really didn't even, you know, it was the kind of thing you read about. I mean, I was always going to clubs sort of to have a social life. But I wasn't in the VIP section. I was just one of the people in these clubs. But because of Al, I started getting invited to all these events. And I kept running into a guy I had gone to Tufts with who was, I wouldn't say my best friend in terms of like the five or six guys I spent every day with, but one of the people I was most fond of. And, you know, we used to see each other all the time in the dining room or all the time. And there's a place called Jay's Deli in Medford that we used to eat all our meals in. And Will was like, is but for, was literally the handsomest guy on the planet and um you know he just always had the most beautiful girlfriend and whatever and but he went through like a series of these um girlfriends who were all kind of blonde and cute and yacht like yacht kind of girls and you know like they would you know girls who has families had homes on new england and you know and one day i ran into on columbus avenue um i was literally doing my laundry in a laundromat and i'm like dressed kind of like this in sweats and Will's like, hey, Davey. And he's one of like three people on the planet who call me Davey. So I knew who it was. And I turn around and uh, he says, come here. I want you to be my new girlfriend. So I'm kind of going to meet Molly or Muffy or whatever it's going to be. <laughs> and I walk in and there in all her glory is Iman, who at the time was the most famous model in the world. It was before she married David Bowie. And I'm, I literally, my jaw dropped. I was like, you know, I tried not to show how some, but I was like, What? Because it was so unexpected. And this was his serious girlfriend, the most famous model in the world at the time. And they started inviting me to all these events with them. And um, uh, we were going to whatever whatever the club of the moment was. And it was quite the life. Because all her friends were literally Calvin Klein or, you know. In, so 
I got exposed to this world at a very, very high level. And I realized I knew a lot of these people from the music industry, but Will's side of it was much more fashion. Um, and that was, you know, in New York, at least at that time, nightlife was really driven by fashion. And whereas in LA, it's driven by, you know, Hollywood. Um, there's a lot more crossover now. And, and now I think athletes have changed the way they perceive themselves and the way the public perceives them. So, you know, now having a Russell Westbrook come into your spot or LeBron is a huge deal. wasn't really like that at the high end of nightlife at that time in the 80s. It was much more important to have the supermodels. Or... So Will and I started going out again together and um, we were in Nell's one night, which was sort of the most famous club of that time um, by far. And, uh, and I kind of said, God, I fucking hate my job. And he's like, yeah, I fucking hate my job. And, you know, he was on wall street. He was a derivatives trader. He was doing really well, but his dad was dying of cancer. And he was sort of having this existential crisis of, you know, like, really, is this what I'm going to do the rest of my life? I'm 40 more years of going to work and hating my job. And I was going through the same thing about law. I mean, I didn't have the family issues, but I was just like, really, this is what I got all A's for. So I could read thousand page leases and get yelled at. And, um, you know, we were a little bit cocky, um, had a couple of shots of tequila in us. Uh, and we, I, we sort of like half jokingly said, let's, f let's fuck this. Let's open a nightclub. We know all these people. We literally looked at the room and, you know, it was this table of models and, you know, although his name is now not great, but there was Russell Simmons and we knew Russell and a guy named Jellybean Benitez, who was a huge producer and had been Madonna's boyfriend. And it was that... At that moment, anyone who was culturally relevant in New York was in the room, and we knew them all. And we we sort of had a party to see if we to test our insanity. And they all showed up, and we were kind of like, we could do this. And I think you know, look, it's the privilege of I had a law degree from Columbia, um, you know, and he was a star trader. I think we had the confidence that look, if if everything went terribly, two years from then we could just go get jobs you know, like suck it up and be like, okay, I'm going to go be a lawyer again. This sucks. Uh, so I quit my job. He quit his. He spent six months um, really kind of trying to bond with his dad to play as much golf as they could. and Because his dad sort of knew I'm going to die X time from now. And so Will spent a great deal of time with his dad. And um, I uh, moved to Phoenix. Um, there was no phrase at the time, FOMO. But I wanted to go somewhere. That was my my thing. Was at the time I was very busy as a lawyer. I was very involved with New York Cares as a volunteer to sort of save my soul, if you will. Um, and I was uh, running around at night trying to have a social life in New York. I was a single guy in New York, organizing dinner parties and all this stuff. And I wanted to just like take a step back and go somewhere where I didn't think I'd be missing anything. And I wanted to read and work out. So basically I thought, I looked at a map and I said, where is it warm from sort of October to December? And I went for th three months and uh, no phone, no TV. And you know, this is pre-cell phone era. So I lived in a, in a, like a housing complex um, that had a, I lived in a little one bedroom. Um, it had tennis courts and a pool. And I bought 30 books that I felt like I always should have read and hadn't. Um, and I read about 10 hours a day and I played two hours of tennis a day and that was kind of it. And only two people had my phone number, my mom, or the phone number of the, the uh, hallway. Uh, there was like a pay phone. And so if they needed to reach me, my mom and Will. 
at my partner. And how old are you at the time? Uh, 28. And Will would call me up like every two weeks and say, you're, you're sure you're coming back? Because <laughs> he, he kind of made a big bet that I was going to come back and not just decide to move to Phoenix. And um, I said, yeah, no, I'm definitely coming back. And I, I was really lucky. I had a friend at the time work for the NFL. I went from Phoenix to uh, Miami, saw the amazing Joe Montana come back against the Bengals um, uh, with friends from college and then came back to New York and worked part-time as a lawyer while we raised money and built out our first place. And then, so then talk, talk to me like a little bit about the development of, um, you're referring to Lotus as the... No, the first place was called Rex. Okay, the first was Rex. And it was in, nine, we opened in the summer of 1990, um, shitty little townhouse on 6th Avenue, uh, for a lot of years, I couldn't even look at it. Like, it was just so painful because we did everything wrong in terms of understanding how to make money at this business. And, you know, it was pre-bottle service. Had it been a bottle service era, we would have been fine. The biggest problem with Rex was, you know, at the time, clubs in New York were big. There was Palladium and Limelight. So you'd have these 3,000-person clubs, and they'd have small VIP rooms where everything was comped. We built the VIP room, but we forgot the big club, if you will. So... We had a room that was filled with everyone who was somebody, um, which was fun and exciting and why we sort of got on the map. But those people don't pay cover. They always get a comp drink, et cetera. So we, the one thing we did right was just by happenstance, the same young women who were Iman and Will's close friends when I started running into them, now they had become the most famous girls on the planet. Literally, it was Linda Evangelista, Cindy Crawford, Christy Turlington, Naomi Campbell. They weren't really my friends. I mean, I have a rapport with them. If I run into them, they're very nice with me. But, but they were really Will's closest friends. So you open a nightclub and that's your base customer. Word gets out, you know. And so, you know, next thing you know, every sort of wealthy guy in New York, every celebrity was rolling through Rex to see what exactly was going on. And we had a secret weapon. There's a woman... Um, she lives in London now. Her name's Elizabeth Saltzman, fantastic person. Uh, and she was an editor at that time at Vogue and young, younger than us even. And, um, she lived nearby, uh, Rex and she sort of made it her last stop every night. And Elizabeth was always out. She did the covers for these magazines. So she was always out with like, and not romantically business stuff, but she's an incredibly charismatic woman. She was always out with like, Warren Beatty, Richard Gere, Mick Jagger, like, and she'd just roll in, you know, and on a daily, on a nightly basis, she'd roll in with someone who's like world famous. And, you know, I'm six months away from having been a real estate lawyer. So I'm completely shocked all the time. Will was a little chiller about it. I'm like, holy shit, Mick Jagger just walked in. I'm like, just stunned. So, you know, that was the first one. It went okay. Um, the good news about it was it led to a lot of other people trying to hire us to do shit. We sort of had made a mark of like, wow, these guys have the best crowd in New York. Um, no one really asked us, were you making money or not? Because we weren't. Um, but they were all very impressed that we were able to draw this crowd. So three or four groups were trying to do something with us at the time. And we worked with a couple of them and then eventually ended up in sort of an insane way in Moscow instead of in New York. Right, so then the big, um, you know, Tyler, Tyler's a, a good friend of mine. He talked about the the, the Russia and the, the Moscow stories, or um, some that that I do not know yet. <laughs> um, but just for a little bit of background, so you, it was a, a Western style 
Supper Club is what they is what they referred to that you started, I think, in in '93. Yes. Yeah, so in 1992, we sold Rex. Um, it was a very bad learning lessons for me about the media. Uh, someone leaked the sale before, just before it was to be sold, and it caused the buyer very astutely, but in a very Machiavellian way, to reduce the price. Um, and there aren't a lot of buyers, you know, once. Once word gets out that something's for sale, kind of blood gets in the water, you know. And so I don't want to digress too much, but the short answer is that we we weren't able to sell Rex for what we thought we could. So we were like completely, you know, sort of psychologically decimated. And I went to L.A. to visit one of my closest friends who had a club out there called Roxbury. Still one of my best friends. Um, amazing guy named Brad Johnson. Roxbury, there's a movie, uh, Night at the Roxbury. It was that it was a real place. Um, so I went out there to hang out with him for like 10 days and get my shit together. And I got this phone call, uh, or a message, I guess, thinking about it. Um, random, like five people removed. Someone that knew me from law school said that, uh, my cousin wants to open a nightclub in Moscow and they want to meet you. And, uh, but you know, I was an IR and poli sci major at Tufts. I was interested enough to at least go to the meeting and, you know, it's it's uh, it was at seven twelve Fifth Avenue. I remember because it was such a spectacular building and so not what we expected. And we walked into these palatial offices of this Russian import export business and bank, and we were like, "What the fuck is going on?" And so we sat across from these guys, uh, and they were very stoic. There was one uh, American-born but Russian background young guy there. Again, here we are. We're thirty-two or something. Thirty-one. He might have been twenty-eight. He did most of the talking for these two very stoic Russian guys who barely spoke English. Um, sort of laid out his pitch of what he wanted to do. And they wanted to create the first Western nightclub in Moscow. They wanted us to run it. They were going to hire the guys who had designed Studio 54 to design it, the actual guys. Um, and would we do it? And we talked a little about it. We said, yeah, sure, let's go take it. I mean, we don't know, but let's go look. And they said, okay. And they left the room and we looked, kind of looked, Will and I kind of looked at each other. And, you know, we've known each other 18, so we're really, like, as close to brothers as, you know, and we're like, wow, we fucked that up. I don't know. They, they don't like us because they never smiled. And, and they came back in 10 minutes later and put papers in front of us and it was visa, uh, visa documents to fill out. And five days later, we were in Moscow looking at the site and sort of trying to learn the learn what was going on in Russia at the time. What's going on in your head through like all of this? and, and that, that point, pure excitement. I mean, look, like, you know, this was the evil empire, right? And three, it's only two years later. You know, and my my biggest paper in college was about the Cuban Missile Crisis and how it was, the story was told by three different, you know, by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and I forget the third periodical. But, um, you know, so I was very immersed in sort of Russian history and U.S. Russian history. And so I, for me, it was like, holy shit, this is f completely fascinating. You know, and of course, Will is so fucking insane and so different than me that like we're walking through Red Square and we realize we're looking at the chopping blocks where they used to literally cut people's <laughs> heads off. And he, he like gives me the camera and puts his head down on one and like says, take a picture. And I'm like, and we see guards coming from everywhere. We're literally sprinting out of Red Square back to our hotel, um, narrowly escaped, uh, drank way, 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 way too much. Like I'm not that drinker, you know? And, um, and, we were just in shock at how much the Russians drank at all times at back then. I don't know what's going on now, but I mean, you know, you, no matter what you said, it was like, oh, we must toast that. <laughs> so it was kind of nightmarish. 
on that level. So you get there, you get there five days later. Mm. And then what's the process like there? Are you working with Took the a while. Um, you- yeah, we, we met the, we, well, uh, we met, we flew over with, it's kind of funny, we flew over not realizing it with the two designers. Um, we were on, they were on the same flight. And I said to Will, because there were these two well-dressed, sort of nice-looking guys, and I said, those guys have to be the architects and designers. And he's like, you're fucking, fuck you. Yeah, you're crazy. And we land, sure enough, it's them. And so we get to know them over a couple of days. They're great guys. And on like the third or fourth night, I said, hey, you know, it's funny, on the plane... I said to Will, these guys, and they, he goes, nah, they're just two gay guys checking us out. And he, so they laughed. They go, oh, we thought the same thing about you. <laughs> so anyway, we became great friends with them. It took a long time. Um, I would say it took a year. And in the interim, the club changed hands. Uh, it was sold from one group to another, so which was part of what slowed it down. But it took a long time from when our first meeting to till we really started construction. Uh, and construction was really slow. Uh, we hired an American who had been my camper when I was a tennis counselor in camp. Uh, when I was 18, he was 12. He now was whatever, 24, 25. We, Michael decided, a young guy named Michael, to move to Moscow with us, but he was going to live there. We were supposed to rotate, Will and I. Michael and a chef named Steve were going to live there all for two years. Uh, Michael, kind of for the sense of adventure, Steve was a little different. He was a chef, and he was recently married, and he was like, he could live for free and bank all his salary for two years and come back and buy a house and like have a life and get ahead in a way you couldn't get it. And that's what most expats, we sort of miscalculated and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we thought that a big part of our clientele in Russia was going to be expats um, who just were craving American food and American music. And turned out that most expats were really trying to live as lean as possible. Their housing was paid for by their company they were trying to bank as much money as they could so they could come back and like take that step up, get that better apartment or get that house in New Jersey they always wanted. So they really weren't looking to go drop $200 at dinner. It was all, our customer base was much more the young oligarchs. We didn't, that that phrase wasn't really in use at the time, but the people you would think of as oligarchs today were 28, 29, hustling in, in Russia. And that was really our base client. What are your parents thinking at the time? You know, um, I have to give my parents a lot of credit because, you know, basically I fulfilled what they asked of me. You know, my dad was, when I really wanted to leave law school, my dad was like, look, you're in an Ivy League law school. It will open up every door for you. You'll always have options. Just get through it. And so when I announced that I was leaving and going to Phoenix, you know, I, you know, everyone thought like, oh my God, your parents are good. They were so cool about it. They were like, you know, look, 28, you did everything we asked every grade we ever wanted from you, you got, you know, every award, you know, if you need this time, great. Um, I did not tell them a lot of the stuff that was really going on in Russia. Um, in fact, and again, I'm jumping ahead, but uh, the club was bombed at one point um, by a rival mafia. And, uh, you know, at that point, I'd been living in Russia for so long or staying in Russia for so long so, so that I didn't even really flinch. Um, I was in bed it's a Sunday morning. I heard an explosion. We lived in a hotel suite about 18 floors above the nightclub. And I heard this giant explosion. But to be honest, I just rolled over and went back to sleep because so much shit went on every day in Moscow. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. Someone blew up a car. Like, it, it you know, you just kind of got used to it. I had no... So the phone rings in my suite like two minutes later. And it's Tanya who was sort of our 
uber mom in Russia, this woman, she was probably only 10 years older than me, but she felt like she was my Russian mom. And uh, she's like, David, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm asleep. She goes, she's like, but didn't you hear that explosion? I'm like, yeah, of course I heard it. She goes, that was the club. So I throw on sweats, I go downstairs and there's KGB or FSB, whatever, everywhere. And they had blown up about a quarter of the club. Now, of course, within about a week's time, the rumor was that the whole club was blown up. The whole building was blown up. We were all blown to death. You know, I remember being in a, in a supermarket and people coming up and like hugging me because they thought we had been all killed. But um, my sister was due to come that week to visit because she always wanted to see Russia. And I, the first thing I did as soon as I saw what had happened was I went back up to my room, called my sister, you can't come. And I have no idea what this is going to mean. And please watch CNN for me and make sure that it's not on CNN because there were cameras there because I don't want mom to freak out, you know. And uh, luckily it didn't make, it would, wasn't enough of a story to make U.S. news. It was big news in Moscow, but it wasn't enough. Uh, so they were pretty cool with it. I mean, I would come home and tell them the stories, but not all the stories, obviously. Uh, you know, I left out the night we were almost murdered and some other stories. Please, please, <laughs> please elaborate on those if, if um, you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me say that we thought we were going to be killed, but we, that's not exactly what happened. Um, um, we, in the restaurant and nightlife business, the... You know, you usually have a couple of dry runs before you open um, friends and family night, if you want to call it. And uh, after months of delays, we finally got the nightclub ready to open. And we had, I don't know, 200 people in from like 8 to midnight. Like it was very structured, you know, just get the servers to try themselves out, bartenders, see if everything worked. Um, with the intention of opening three or four days later. Uh and um, so we had this night, it went from eight to midnight. As far as we could tell, it went perfectly. We were kind of very relieved because we didn't expect that. There were a lot of people there we knew, but there were a lot of people there we didn't know and, you know, guests of the owners, et cetera. So we went to bed. Will and I lived at that time in this horrible old hotel called the Rosia, but they had redone in Russian fashion at the time. They'd, it was, so everything was done sort of half-assed. So they had built these 18 amazing rooms, but... They had no Western cell phone, uh, satellite phones. They had no Western TV. So really expats who had real budget didn't stay there. So if you were, you would stay at one of the other nicer hotels in Russia, but for, the rooms were spectacular. So we lived there very happily because for us, it was a great commute. Just take the elevator. Um, and we had a chef. So we were like, okay, not so bad. Um, so uh, we go to bed and... Uh, the next morning, I get a phone call from Michael, who, as I mentioned, he grew up out here in Brooklyn on DeKalb Avenue, I guess, before it was cool. Um, and uh, he called and told me a story, and uh, which I'll tell you in a second. And I listened to it, and I thought about it for a minute, and I got real quiet. And I just sort of said, you know what, Michael, start packing and tell Steve to start packing. Now, they lived in a house nearby they because they were going to live there for two years. They couldn't, there was no economics to keep them in a hotel for the whole time. So they had a nice little house nearby. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, just start packing. We're going to leave tomorrow. And um, I woke up, Will, I told him, and I called Tanya, this woman who would be, you know, her her real role in life was supposed to be our translator, but she kind of became our Uber mom and a very trusted person. And I called her and I told her what was going on. And she begged us to change our minds. And I'm like, nah, Tanya, we're going to go. I said, just please get tickets for us. And 
So she called me back in like an hour and she said, you know, the, the whole team wants to say goodbye to you and everyone's so sad and came by downstairs to the club and sort of hugged everyone and said goodbye and it was very upsetting and, you know, but then we sort of, we knew we were at peace with our decision that we had done the right, that we had made the right decision and, um, you know, people are like, well, why didn't you just go to the airport or why didn't you just... It wasn't like that in Russia at that time. No one spoke English. Credit cards weren't used. It wasn't like we had $3,000 in our pocket to go buy a ticket. So we needed them to help us get out. Um, so uh, anyway, we we're up in our room. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning. We're packing and um, I'm listening. I know because I was playing the music so much, people wanted to kill me, but I was listening to The Chronic by Snoop and Dr. Dre and um, on a little Sony Discman and... Uh, I just kept hitting repeat and Will was like, what the fuck? But I loved the album so much that it had just come out. And, uh, you know, the phone rings and it's this young guy that worked for us, Alexei, who again was chosen by them, but sort of was co-opted by us. And he's like, David, can you please come down to the club? And I'm like, no, why would we do that? Like it's two in the morning, we're not even open. And he's like, yeah, I know, but the owners are here and they want to they wanna see you. And I'm like, you tell Misha who in my mind was the owner or at least their owner's rep. I said, you tell Misha, I'll just see him in New York when he comes back next week or two weeks and we can talk it out, but I'm not coming down now. And there's a long pregnant pause and he's like, it, it's not Misha. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, David, please, the real owners are here. Please come down. And I'm like, oh shit, they're going to hurt Alexei if we don't do I wasn't even thinking about me because that was beyond my lack of imagination. You know, I should have been thinking more about like, oh shit, what did this mean for us? But we felt so untouchable that we just thought that it was something bad for him. So I'm like, well, we got to go downstairs. Alexei's in trouble. He's like, fuck you. I'm not going downstairs. I'm like, Come on, let's go downstairs. So, you know, what's the big deal? <laughs> Take the elevator. So we go downstairs and go through the uh, coat check room, which was sort of the back way to get in. And now we enter the nightclub, which was sort of a long, a 10,000 square foot long, more of a rectangle than a square and in the back, there was a private little VIP room, which was, you know, smaller than the studio. But to get to that room, you had to walk through this, the big main room. And I swear there were 20, 25 to, to a side of the biggest, scariest humans I've ever seen in my life. Now, I'd seen a couple of them the night before at the club, but I just thought they were just bodyguards of bankers or whatever. Like, it didn't occur to me that they had anything to do with us. Um, I'd never seen them before. But all of a sudden, I'm walking through and... We felt like chum, like in a shark boat. We thought that they were just literally, there was so much tension and anger in their faces. And we were like three guys walking through the middle of basically looked like the Chicago Bears of 1949, you know, because no face mask, you know, like scars, tats, you know, gold teeth. We're like, what the fuck? So then we passed by um, the, what I called the Kung Fu guards because they were like all lean and mean dudes, but they all could, they you know, probably kill you with one shot. And I had kind of gotten to know one of them. He didn't speak English. I didn't speak Russian. But he kind of looked at me and he just gave me the like, you know, like, you're fucked face. And, you know, no idea what to expect. So now we walk into the VIP room and the guys we think that own the club are, are cowering in the corner in between guys with Kalashnikovs. And their, like, heads are down and they're, like, look terrified. And there's four guys we've never seen in our lives um, sitting 
uh, on a couch dressed in Savile Row suits and, you know, drinking like bankers, drinking tea with pinky up. And one guy was in jeans, but the other guys were in these three impeccable suits and they sort of bid us to sit down. I kind of look at Will and I'm like, oh God. So, <laughs> so we sit down and this one guy starts stroking his, his beard. He might've been a little bit older than us, but he looked, he, Russians at, at the time tended to look older and he just asked me to please tell him, and it was like his best Godfather imitation. I think he'd seen the movie too many times. He sort of croaked it out, like, you know, and he asked me to tell him what had happened the night before. And I looked at Will, and Will was like, after you. <laughs> so um, I told him the story, and which is that uh, I guess a few minutes after everyone was done and then we were clearing out the place, four of these goons from the other room had gone up to the bartender who was this, 25-year-old kid that was working from Russia, nice-looking young guy, already married, already a baby, very typical of the time. And they said, make us a gin and tonic. And as he was instructed, he said, I'm so sorry, sir, the bar is now closed. You know, please come back on Saturday. We'll be open to the public. And he looks at him and he said, look, you little motherfucker, I own this club. I'm a gangster. Make me the drinks or when you leave, I'll kill you. And that's not like some asshole in New York who says that to a bounce, you know, this is <laughs> dead straight up dead serious. I will shoot you in the head when you walk out. So the bartender starts crying because he doesn't really, we were paying people 25 or $30 a night. I don't know what exactly their parents were making $7 a month. So we were changing people's lives, not, not out of, you know, benevolence. We, we would, we were trying to hire the best we could find and make sure that we were the top of the game in all of Eastern Europe. That was our goal. Like we were going to create something no one could believe exists. So we recruited, and those are all fun stories too, but we recruited all these amazing looking English speaking uh, people to work for us. And so this guy's like, on the one hand, he obviously doesn't want to get killed. On the other hand, he's very loyal to us and very, I mean, his job was changing his whole life. So he didn't know what to do. So he's sort of paralyzed and crying. And Michael, our young manager, kind of jumps behind the bar and like, what's the problem? And they say the same thing to him, like, we know you're the American. We don't fucking care. We'll kill you too. So he he just makes the four drinks. He's not stupid. It's like, costs us 30 cents. <laughs> makes the four drinks. And uh, they kind of look at him, look at each other, start laughing, throw the drinks on our guys and walk out. And they were clearly ready to kill them if they had not. And so I told this story to this guy who still had not introduced himself. And I said, look, we're not here for this cowboy shit. Like, we're here to do a job. You know, your our lives were through, well, our, this boy, I've known him since he was eight years old or 10 years old. I said, I'm not going back to Brooklyn to tell his mother he got killed over a gin and tonic. I'm not risking my life to just, uh, you know, I said, so we want no part of this. And he kind of strokes his beard again and he looks at his compatriots and he looks back at me. I have zero idea what he's going to say. And he says, this is exactly the story that our sources have told us occurred. And he goes, it's completely my fault. And he said, my name is Yuri. And me and my associate, my associates and I, we own 16 businesses together and we each divide up and I'm in charge of four of them and Manhattan Express is one of my projects. So everything that's occurred to you is my fault. I sh these men, in fact, do work for us. In fact, they work for you. And they're your, they're your roof. They're your, they're your protection from from outside sources. And we hired them in part for, to protect us from the outside, but we also hired them at first to protect us from you because we never work with Americans. You have to understand the culture in Russia at that time was everyone was stealing from everybody. That was the only way they survived under communism. 
So they never, they just assumed we would be dirty too, but we were completely clean. Like it never even occurred to us to steal anything or cut corners or anything like that. Like not because we were afraid to get caught. It's just not in our DNA. Like we're just trying to get an A basically, right? Like just want to do an amazing job uh, and create something. Because we really thought that we had stepped into an amazing opportunity where that if we did a great job here, it was going to get international press and people were from all around the world were going to hire us to create so we were like, we just want this to be the most famous place ever in, in Eastern Europe. And um, so he said, we know how hard you work. We've been watching. We should have come forward sooner and introduced ourselves. It's completely our fault. Um, I want to tell you that we're going to guarantee your personal safety. And we want you to go into the other room. We want you to choose the man who threatened you. He will come before all of us. He'll apologize and then he'll never be seen again. And they were clearly saying they were going to kill the guy as an example to everyone else, never fuck with the Americans. So, and the reason we knew it was a real threat was because two weeks earlier, there's a movie that you wouldn't have seen because it's a long time ago called Miller's Crossing where they discover, a gang discovers someone stealing from them and they bury him waist up in, the, in, a, um, uh, in a pit and they rev up a car and they threaten to run him over unless he tells who his conspirators were. And when he won't tell, they run him over. Well, they actually did that in Russia two weeks earlier to someone. And we, not our guys, but we, everyone in Russia was talking about that. So we knew it wasn't an idle threat. And, um, you know, again, I looked at Will and he kind of, you know, looked back at me, passed the baton. And uh, I said, look, you seem very earnest. You know, I believe that you intend to keep us safe, but from what I've seen in Russia at this time, I don't really believe anyone is safe. Um, but because you, you know, seem so committed to keeping us here, and you know, they were, they were he had mentioned that we th we know Manhattan Express is going to be a huge success, but we know it will never happen without you guys. And da da da. It was very complimentary. I said, look, why don't we compromise and why don't we agree to stay for a month? And if we feel safe for a month, we'll complete our two-year consulting agreement. But if at any time during that month, any of this kind of craziness starts again, I would like your word, you know, again, naive, because, you know, I'm asking a guy for his word I met five minutes ago. But at the time, I, I felt like I could believe in the guy. I said, I, I'd like your word that you'll pay all four of us for what we're due for the two years and safely get us to the airport. And again, he sort of like... He hasn't smiled yet at all. And he just kind of strokes his beard. He looks back at the other three guys, looks back at us, and finally breaks his poker face and breaks into a broad smile and says, this is exactly where I hoped we would end up in this conversation. And we had the equivalent of a 1993 bro hug, I yeah. guess. And um, so as we leave the room, we hear them, and we didn't speak much Russian yet, but we hear them talking to the actual head of security and the other putative owners in a tone that you can imagine of like, I'm sure what they were saying was, if you ever fucking do this again, I'm going to kill all you motherfuckers kind of thing. Not to us, to these guys. And the sort of kung fu bodyguard that had given me the evil eye, when as I walked past him, he kind of looked at me and laughed. And I realized he had been fucking with me. He knew we were safe, but he knew he could scare the shit out of me just by shaking his head. And um, then we had to walk back through the gauntlet of these dudes. And we realized we had misinterpreted their well, not necessarily their hate for us, but we had missed it. It was fear. They really expected because life was very cheap in Russia at that time. So this guy, and I knew exactly who it was, to be honest, um, he fully expected that we were going to single him out because a Russian would have, but we never would have, right? So he came to that meeting thinking, I'm dying tonight. And um, I, as imperceptibly as I could, I nodded at him and he as imperceptibly, I think, as he could, he nodded at me. 
And to this day, I can't tell you his name, but a lot of shit happened in that club over the next two years. And I had like my own personal, um, you know, uh, uh, bodyguard. You know, I mean, this guy was behind me in a microsecond if shit went down because I had saved his life um, by not identifying him that night. So cut to three days later, we go to brunch at this spectacular hotel uh, called the Metropole with these young guys that my um, sister knew from business school. And, uh, you know, it's as different of a venue as you can imagine. It's like almost like one of the Grand Palais palaces, uh, hotels in Paris or the Plaza uh, here in New York or something. And, you know, stained glass windows and violin, violin uh, quartet playing Mozart and Bach and we go to have brunch with these guys and they had sent us like a driver guy had to be 90 years old in like basically a tin can with wheels to pick us up. You know, like it was the worst car I've ever been in my life. It was terrifying. We get there, sit to have lunch with these guys. And, and um, so we just start bullshitting. They're a little younger than us, maybe a year or two, but not much. And like, what are you guys doing here? What are you guys doing here? Da, da, da. And they said they were in the beer business. And I said, beer business is a vodka company. And they're like country. And they said, You'd be surprised at how much beer is consumed by guys getting off their shift in the factory. And I said, okay. I said, but you're in the beer business? What the fuck does that mean? And they're like, well, we don't really tell people this, but because you're Lauren's brother, you know, we've, under different company names, we've acquired 80% of the domestic breweries in Russia and very quietly, and we're almost at 100%. And when we get to 100%, we're going to try and bundle them and sell them, which they did for a fortune at some point. So I'm looking at them and I'm like, okay, so if you guys are doing so well, why are you driving around in the shittiest car known <laughs> that I've ever seen in my life? And they're like, and they're like, David, don't you get it? Don't you get how dangerous it is here yet? And I'm like, well, I'm starting to get it, but what do you mean? And they're like, we don't want anyone looking at us. We don't want to be in a fancy car. We don't want to call any attention ourselves. We're trying to get in, make our money, and get the fuck out. And I said, okay, so do you live like us in a hotels because you feel safe? And they're like, no, that's the one conceit. That's the one thing we spent money on. We bribed our way into former KGB headquarters so that we could live safely because they have gun gun turrets and you have to, you know, be identified to come in and come out and all that stuff. And I'm like, holy shit. And then completely unprompted, and this is where the, you know, magic of conversation comes up sometimes. And they go, yeah, but, you know, there's this one guy, and even though our building is so safe, when he comes, he comes in a bomb-proof, not bulletproof, bomb-proof Mercedes um, uh, limo, and there's a chase van in front and behind. And before he gets out of his car, they eight guys get out of each of the other vans and form a human wall for him to walk through so that snipers can't kill him from the side. And I'm like, what the fuck? Who's that guy? And they're like, well, he's the head of the mafia for all of Moscow and southern Russia. I'm like, what's his name? They're like, his name's Yuri. <laughs> and I turn, I turn the color of your shirt. Now, that's the difference between me and Will. Will laughs. Like, he thinks it's hysterical that this is our boss. And I think it's the worst moment I've ever, you know, like we realize now the guy that we had been sitting with three nights earlier was the head of the mafia for all of Russia at the time or all of Moscow at the time. Most powerful. He was like Kaiser Sose. And um, so to be honest, he treated us with tremendous respect all the way through because we, we were, as we said, we were just hardworking and he noticed it and he saw it and he, we developed a really great rapport. I would say honor amongst thieves, except we weren't thieves. But I mean, he just treated us with great respect because he saw like these guys are busting their ass and they're trying to create a great product for us and we need to protect them. So 
what started out as like the worst phone call of my life <laughs> turned into like it, it, everything was. I'm not saying there weren't other things that happened, i.e., being bombed or there were other incidences, but incidents. But um, yeah, the big one was thinking we were being summoned to be killed, and thankfully we're not. Did you think that one um, poor step you were you could be gone in a second? You know, we didn't really because oddly enough, and we hadn't understood it up until that night, um, oddly enough, well, there were two things. One, we always just felt safe. We were kind of escorted around in, in nice cars and we didn't really go into Moscow, Moscow or, you know, so, uh, and there were always people around us, but we really didn't realize we were being watched at all times and protected and that was part of it. Um, so, no, we never really felt that way and then of course once we realized who we were working for we certainly didn't but also up until about a year through our being there there seemed to be this unwritten rule of don't like it was almost understood by russians with an unspoken way don't fuck with the west we need them we need americans to teach us how to do this shit capitalism is three day, three years old you know we need these people whether you're using and there was a very deep divide you could tell who really wanted us and welcomed us and understood it was important to have fresh ideas and teach them capitalism and teach them how to run a business. And then you could tell, for lack of a better phrase, the sort of uh, Putin side of things, the, the, like the head of security um, was a former KGB guy who we didn't realize spoke English for the first nine months we were there. And he actually spoke perfect English and never spoke it in front of us deliberately to make us think he didn't speak English. And, um, there was a faction that wanted us to fail badly because to them, Mother Russia, great pride in Russia. Russia doesn't need these fucking Americans. What are these guys doing here trying to teach us how to run a business? We're, we're Russians. We have the greatest literature, the greatest music. So there was almost this hostile divide between people who were like so embracing of us and then others who were like wanted us to fail. Um, luckily, we were protected by Yuri and his, his guys. But yeah, a guy, there was a guy... There was another hotel in town called the Radisson Slavyanskaya. And there was an American who sort of rolled around town as if he was the true owner and the true boss. And uh, he had worked in the Bush administration, Bush, the first administration, and, and somehow got appointed to this job. But the truth was that it was a small Chechen gangster who, if you spent any time in that hotel, actually ran that hotel. And he would sit and drink his espresso and... You, you knew not to fuck with his table. Like, he just sat there and it was clear. But this guy, Paul, would run around Russia acting as if I'm the guy, you know. And I don't know what the specifics are that he did wrong, but they tried to convince him to leave the country and he refused and he barricaded himself in his suite uh, at the hotel and um, they stabbed his bodyguard in the hallway and they told, not to kill him, but they stabbed him in the shoulder and they said, tell your boss it's high time, which is a very Russian phrase, it's high time for him to leave him, leave Russia. And he didn't leave, and somehow they lured him to a meeting with the pretense of being a safe, neutral site, and it was like the St. Valentine's Day massacre, you know, you know. And that was the first time, it was probably a year into our stay there, that an American had been killed. And we're like, oh, the jig's up. Like, they've lost the fear of killing an American if an American steps out of line. But again, you ask if we felt safe. We did, because... I, the two things I put in our contract were we want no, we have no control over taxation and we, and, and we don't want any control over banking. And I deliberately never let them teach me the combination to the safe. 
I never wanted to know. Um, I never touched a dollar there or a ruble. Um, I mean, that's a funny thing. Like our guys were so powerful that I think it was, if it was 93, so it was probably January of 94 to prop up their currency. They decided that no more, we were accepting all money and it was all hundred dollar bills. Every, there was no credit cards and everything was U.S. currency. They didn't want the ruble to be devalued, so they, they, they made a pronouncement that all retail sales had to be in rubles. So you would have to convert money. And our guys were so powerful, they got Manhattan Express declared a branch of their bank. And so, in effect, all our bartenders were bank tellers. So you could still pay. You could only get change in rubles, but you could still pay for your drinks or your dinner in American dollars. So guys would come in with a couple of you know, $100 bills and they would get back, you know, whatever, 50 rubles or whatever the exchange rate was at the time. So basically, no, we didn't feel threatened because anything we wanted kind of happened for us. It was amazing. Did you ever meet that Yuri figure again? Oh, I saw him all the time. Um, he, he, he was really, for lack of a better uh, comparison, and I, I, you know, it was, it was like Rick's Cafe in Casablanca. I mean, Mar Manhattan Express was the de facto meeting ground for anyone, anyone who's important in Russia at that time. Uh, politicians, I don't know how much, you know, you weren't born. So, you know, we were there for the last coup, which is a whole nother insane story. I don't want to bore you with the whole Russian thing. So you're not boring me at all. Okay, <laughs> but if you want to hear that story, I can tell you. But there was a coup and uh, it was, they had seized their own White House, which was for them like seizing the Senate, not the president's residence. They, their, their White House, their Senate was called the White House. And this uh, faction of diehard communists seized their own Senate trying to mount the last coup against Yeltsin. And um, I believe the guy's names were Ruslan and Kazbilatov. I might be getting it slightly wrong, but they were sentenced to a year in jail um, for their role in this coup. And the very first night that they got out of jail, where did they come? The Manhattan Express. I mean, it was just, if you were, I forget his name. I'd have to Google, but you know, the Russian version of Sinatra from him, you know, from the 60-year-old guy that everyone in Russia loved and grew up on to this amazing band that if I had known more about how to do it called Moralny Codex, who sang half their songs in English and half in Russian, that I tried to figure out how to get them to come to America because I used to play their music at a place we had in New York called Union Bar and people would ask me, who's that band? They had no idea it was a Russian band. So anyone who was anyone was in, in our place. And then you, you mentioned the, the recruitment was a the way you guys recruited was pretty interesting for the people that worked for you? Well, yeah, we, you know, I didn't know that they were going to do it, but they ran ads all over Moscow. Um, we knew what we wanted. We went to, you know, in America at this point, or even for the last 20 years, if you show up at a modeling agency and say, hey, I want to hire some models, they look at you like, yeah, yeah, you and every fucking other idiot in New York wants to hire models. Get the fuck out of here. Like, um, but in Russia, to walk into a modeling agency in 1992 and say, hey, you know, we want to hire seven of your girls to be hostesses. They don't have to stop modeling, but because at the time it was very hard to get out of Russia. So unless you were in that uber elite, you know, I'm literally talking about 0.01% of models who could get a contract with in Paris, guaranteed visa contract. You couldn't just as a Russian, pretty a pretty Russian girl, you couldn't just say, I'm going to go to Paris and try my luck on the runway and see if I get hired. Um so these girls were basically trapped in Russia. There were beautiful women and actually a lot of great looking guys too. Um, and so we went to all the agencies and we said, send you all your girls to these to this date in this place. And, uh, and then they read tons of ads for us as well. 
But what I didn't know, and I did these, just happened, Will and I took turns. So I happened to be there for the interview days. And I'm more on that side of the business anyway. I was always more on the personnel, music, marketing side. And Will is always much more on the systems, how does this going to work um, side of things. He likes that stuff. It's ironic because literally he looked like some combination of Brad Pitt and Warren Beatty in their prime. I mean, he's, he's the handsomest guy ever. They used to call him laser eyes in Russia because he's... He has these cutting blue eyes and jet black hair. And so no one had ever seen anyone like him. So they used to talk about him. Like you'd hear, oh, that's Laser Eyes' partner, you know. Um, But I ended up doing all these interviews. What I didn't know, because you would never do this in America, they set us up in a theater. um, I don't know, like the Beacon Theater or something like that. And I was in the front row. And then there were all these subordinates to me. And I'm not very comfortable with that, but all the Russian versions of me behind me. And then they would march I, I don't know, 600 people in front of me on a stage, 10 at a time, and have them turn around and all, for me to say who I wanted to see and talk to. Um, and so I narrowed it from, you know, 700 or 1,000 or whatever we had to see over two days down to, you know, 200 and then down to the, our staff of like 50 or 60. Um, but that's how the process worked. And I remember one kid in particular... Um, I knew for, right from seeing him, you know, so we got to the second phase to do the interviews and I knew right from looking at him that I wanted to hire him. He was a great looking kid. He had, you could just, he was just beaming of personality. And we sat down, we started bullshitting for two minutes. His name was Dima. His English was pretty good, but he was just, just oozing of char- charisma, you know? And I said, he, I said, Dima, okay. In my mind, I, I in my mind, I used to call him Joe Namath because of this answer because Joe Namath wrote a, a, a and you asked me before we started talking if I was ever starstruck by meeting someone. I was starstruck when I met Joe Namath because as a little kid, that was my my guy. So he Joe Namath's autobiography was, I can't wait till tomorrow because I get better looking every day. So um, this kid, Dima, is sitting across me. I said, all right, Dima, you see, look, you, you look out there. You see, there's 100 guys who want this job. There's only 10 bartending jobs. Why am I giving this job to you? And he looks at them, he looks back, he goes, he goes because I'm better looking and funnier than all of them. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, you're hired. I mean, he he knew who he was. And we paired him with this really lovable sort of Russian fat kid uh, named Alex, um, who was, you know, like Santa Claus without the Santa suit, like just funny and jovial and just beaming of joy kind of thing. And so you had this this tag team of this like lean model looking guy who with the slick back hair was gorgeous. And then you had this sort of roly poly sweet as could be. And they, they, they were like famous bartenders in Russia from that. It was perfect casting. So then how long in total was your time in Russia? Talk, uh, talk about the end as well. Like when, uh, you, when you get out. Well, it was a two year agreement. Mm, the place crushed it. It was doing like $5 million a year us, which even today would be a good number, but, Back then, it was a ridiculous number. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we'd be happy to do five million US at some some of the places we have in New York right now. So this is 1993, and we're doing that. There, it was stupid numbers, but there was a real competition almost to outspend um, the other table. You know, stuff we never would have anticipated. You know, but like these were young ballers, and they were. It was. It's. It's somewhat similar, in some ways, to when you, you when you hear music from the original hip hop culture of like you know, bottle service and sort of showing off a little bit and stuff. And so at that time in Russia, it was like, basically, who's got a bigger dick kind of thing going on. It was like, and so if one table bought six bottles of champagne and four lobsters, the table next to them would just order fourteen steaks and twelve bottles of champagne for no reason. They could never have 
consumed it, but it, they just wanted to say, I'm tougher than that guy or I'm richer than that guy. Um, I mean, the stuff that went on at Manhattan Express was insane. You know, we had a gun check. So you'd have these beautiful, you know, I wouldn't go to a place in Russia at the time that didn't have a gun check um, because it was so dangerous. So you would have these gorgeous women show up in like, you know, stilettos and micro minis and a little Chanel purse. And they'd very calmly pull out their little two-shooter gun and hand it to the little lady and she'd lock it in the safe. And then on the way out, she'd get her gun back. So the little details of Russia at that time were so crazy. But our contract came to an end. And by then, Yuri and I had a really good rapport. And I said, look, and they had brought in this expert from Sochi to take over for us. And he was as throwback to the bad, horrible communist managers as I'd ever seen. And out of pure concern, I did not want to stay. We were about to do a new business in New York. Um, Tyler's mom and I were getting more serious. We weren't married yet, but we were like, I was not trying to stay in in um, in Russia. But I also was so deeply, I mean, this was like a family to me. You know, we spent, I spent probably 14 out of 24 months living there. So, and we built this thing into this kind of famous place. And um, I didn't want to see it fall apart. So I went to Yuri and I said, Yuri, you're making a terrible mistake with this guy. And he's like, no, no, we've had many people tell us he's a great expert. He comes from such and such resort. And he, I'm like, Yuri, trust me. <laughs> we know each other now. Like, this guy's terrible. He's going to ruin this place. And we sort of made a gentleman's bet that he would, I said, you're going to call me within six months. I think it was September. Said, you're going to call me in six months. He goes, no, no, I'm not. It was, and we, you know, it was cool. we were cool. I said, you're going to call me. And he's like, mm. I swear five months and two weeks, you know, sometime within my time frame, they called us and flew us back. And they said, it's, you're right. It was ru he's ruined it. It's filled with like low-end, all the stuff we didn't let in, low-end prostitutes, uh, gang, low-end gangsters, all the, you know, I spent a lot of time teaching the doorman what I wanted, you know, there and what I wanted the place to feel like and who to select. And, you know, I said, look, money will follow art or it'll follow beauty or it'll follow culture. Um, you can always get, the moneyed guys, you just need to get all the other stuff in here. And, um, you know, there were many crazy stories at the door of me trying to do that as well. But um, uh, they now went for the bottom line. They just went like they went for it. And they had strippers in there and they were running a gaming room, a gambling room, and it was just terrible. And we went and saw the new clubs, the, you know, Russia Nightlife 2.0, if you will, and they were kicking our ass. They were just so much better. They're better lighting, better music better sound systems. I hated the fucking music. It was early EDM, so I was miserable. I was a total hip-hop guy. So I was like, are you kidding me? But that's what they wanted to hear. So um, anyway, we went back to Yuri and we said, look, we can fix it. I said, one party's not going to do it. Like you can't, yes, people, if you leave it as Manhattan Express, people will come one time to say hi to David and Will because we're popular and they know us here and, you know, but they're not coming a second time. They don't give a shit. The place looks like crap. There's four better clubs. I said, you need to set. The thing you have is you still have the best location in Russia. We were across the street, excuse me, across the street from the Kremlin and St. Basil's. We were literally dead zero. If, if U.S. was going to drop a bomb, we would have been the target because we were in the exact center of Moscow. I said, so just spend a few hundred thousand dollars, three, four hundred thousand dollars or something, and let's rebrand it. Some new furniture, some better sound system, a new name. And they just weren't willing to pull the trigger on that. And so over, you know, I stayed in touch for many years with the staff who had worked for us and just, it just continued on this, you know, decline that I predicted, but they just weren't willing to reinvest in it. So it was sad. Uh, it happens. 
I mean, it happens in nightlife everywhere, but it was sad because they didn't have to let it happen. Um, but, you know, it was predictable. And then how did your experience in nightlife and, in, in, I guess, the mid-1990s then prepare you for Lotus and all of more of your ventures here in, in New York? Well, the truth is we, by accident over there, we met some people and they said, hey, our friends own a bagel shop on Union Square. And they don't know what to do with it. Can you go talk to them? And we're like, okay. You know, like literally like we're like, okay, we'll go. And because, you know, we really like the person who asked us to, to do the favor. And we get there and at the time, and again, this is, you know, long before your time, but Park Avenue South was really a hot spot in New York. There was a place called The Coffee Shop, a place called Park Avalon. There was about to be a place called Lemon. A lot of nightlife, the meatpacking district hadn't happened yet. So a lot of nightlife was centered right around there. And these guys had this failing bagel shop that was amazing in terms of location right in the middle of this. And we're like, we said, look, we don't know anything about bagels, but this would be a great bar, you know? And they kind of looked at us like we we're out of our minds. And like, and it turned out to work out perfectly. Someone we had met in Russia put up the money, an American um, put up the money for it. And we did a high-end, nice-looking, but not uber-exclusive like Rex was or like Lotus was to be, um, cocktail bar on Park Avenue South. And we made them partners in it, but they were able to go on. She became an accountant for a restaurant. He went cooking at another. So they basically now had a third income source. They got real jobs. They weren't, they were making, they weren't even able to pay themselves from their bagel place. So now he went to be a cook. She went to be an accountant. Plus they got money from Union Bar. We opened Union Bar in 1995. Um, and this is where Will is so bright and so, you know, in many ways, you know, so much brighter than I am, you know, or sees things differently. And that's always important in a partnership. Um, the first three, four weeks was again, our normal crowd, like this celebrity or that model or this, whatever. And then it just sort of morphed away from that. It sort of became Park Avenue South ad, ad executives or insurance executives or whatever it may be. And I said to Will, fuck, wow, we, lo we lost our crowd. Like, and he said, are you an idiot? He's like, look around this room. He goes, it's completely packed with nice looking people who don't give a shit if we're here or not. It's the best thing we've ever done because we're not tied to it. We could do three more of these and no one would know. Let's just make sure this one stays working and we'll do other stuff. So we, we did. We were like, we started looking for other opportunities to do upscale bars that didn't require being the coolest kid on the block. And just by accident in 1998 or nine, um, I was... I very mistakenly took on the role of uh, president of the New York Nightlife Association because a guy talked me into it. He said, look, I'm selling my place. You're the only other person in nightlife who has a law degree. We need someone like you to be able to go to these meetings. And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. It didn't sound like so. It turned out to, that's why my hair is all gray. But um, so I was sort of a little bit still in it. And so I knew a lot about the laws and cabaret laws and what was going on in nightlife and the move sort of against it in certain neighborhoods. And out of nowhere, uh, a broker came to us with this spot on 14th between 9th and 10th. And I'm like, oh, who cares about that area? That's areas, you know, it's like, it's literally was a couple of rundown bars, but it was primarily transvestite hooker area. Like that's really what it was known for. Um, and I'm like, no one's going there. No one from our world is going to that area for nightlife. And he goes, you just go look at it. Took a look at it. I was like, oh my God. Like it was three stories, fully licensed, low rent, had the cabaret license. But what was most important was it was in the last area of Manhattan that was zoned for manufacturing. 
which meant that they could not deny us the licenses and that no neighbors could complain because no one is allowed to live in a manufacturing neighborhood. And that's crucial because then no one can just build an apartment building next to you and then two years later say, hey, I want you to close your club. So we knew that we would be safe there. And it felt like Godfather 3 with Al Pacino. I felt like, you know, we're trying to get out and they're forcing us back in. And I said, well, I don't know if we can not do this. Like, we almost have to do this. And we went and got the guys who had been, had, had we had, that were very much like us in 1990 when we did Rex. So it's 10 years later. We're not quite as, we have what I would have called residual juice. We still knew a lot of people, but we, I was, I was, let's see what year I was married. Will was married. You know, we weren't living that life of like, let's be out every night. You know, we had gotten kind of used to a union bar, not needing us to be there every night. So as I said, we still knew kind of everybody, but we weren't aggressively living that life. And so we went and got these two guys who were running, um, they were the promotional directors of this big club in West Village called Life, which was the club of the moment. And we said, do you guys want to be partners in a venture? Uh, a guy named Mark Baker and Jeffrey Jaw. And they were a little bit nuts and a little unfocused, but that was okay because we didn't need them to do that. And eventually we formed a team and uh, built, and were able to raise the money and build Lotus. Um, and we really, again... You know, people always say, oh, you're always in there. It was a happy accident. I didn't know the meatpacking district was going to, you know, I didn't know Keith McNally was going to open Pastis, which was arguably the most important restaurant of that year or for many years at that time around the corner from us. Um, so three or four things happened at once that all opened in that area. And all of a sudden people were like, oh, shit, this is the new area. And people just went to Pastis or went to a restaurant called Florent, which is now gone, and then would come to us um, at Lotus. So we really... We got to the right place at exactly the right moment. I'm going to take a quick break. Sure. I talk about Manscaped. Okay, go. Support for Where Is This Going comes from Manscaped, who is number one in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for all of your family jewels. <laughs> Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their Perfect Package 2.0. Inside the Perfect Package, you'll find their electric trimmer called the Lawnmower 2.0. To get those hard-to-reach places, you'll find the plow inside. The plow is a single-blade razor that will prevent razor bumps. And of course, let's not forget about the crop preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits, so why are you not putting it on the smelliest part of your body? It's time to get clean with this perfect package 2.0. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WTG at manscaped.com. Always use the right tools for the job, and your balls will thank you. Back into it. <laughs> yeah, I checked my fantasy football, but that sounded pretty good. <laughs> um, I'm curious. In uh, you know, you've had a lot of uh, partnerships with a variety of people. For you, when you're when you're looking at a business partnership, what do you look for in in a partner and in a venture? How do you kind of gauge and assess uh, different people you're going to work with in different situations? Well, it's definitely evolved over time. I mean, up until six, seven years ago, I did everything with Will and occasionally with other people. Um, like Mark and Jeffrey, we reached out to them because as for Lotus, as I said, they were, you know, they were as in it as you could possibly be. They knew every fashion designer, every graphic designer, every mo every editor of every important magazine, every model in New York. So we knew they were the right people for us to join forces with at that time. And it sort of 
two plus two equaled five at that time. And we really, we really did crush it coming out of the gate. Um, you know, look, we, our problems were nothing compared to what really happened to people. I mean, 3,000 people lost their life, but Lotus was 13 months into it and on, like exploding when 9-11 happened. And it really knocked us off track because for over a year, people really didn't want to go out that way. They still needed to eat. They would go get pasta or burgers or whatever, but no one was going out to celebrate. And um, we lost. We were. We would have been the first New York nightclub in Mos in Vegas. Vegas was going to build us a Lotus in Las Vegas, but that fell apart after after that. So that we chose those partners at that time because they were the right guys for the, what we were trying to accomplish at that moment, which we knew we wanted to sort of rule nightlife, if you will. I mean, it sounds arrogant and horrible. I'm sorry to say it that way, but. We knew that we couldn't do it ourselves anymore. That we would be like people would have come in out of sort of old relationships and come and hang out a little bit. But after time, we weren't current. Um, they were super, super current, and we knew that that we needed them to make it happen. Um, then about seven years ago, uh, Lamb's Club was already open. Um, Will had passed on a couple of rooftops opportunities that I had been that had presented to us because he thought we were too busy. Uh, with various projects, and I got offered the roof of the James, which is called Jimmy at the James, and um, I went to Will and uh, and the other guys, and I'm like, we should do this, and they said, no, we have too much going on, we're going to get this, we're going to get that, and I'm like, look, we all know we keep getting offered all this shit, and then it all falls through, or one happens and six don't. I'm like, I'm not saying no to this one, I'm telling you again, like, we should do this. It's the 18th floor of a building in Soho with almost 360 degree views and a pool. I'm not passing this up. And they said, no, we don't want to do it. We have too much else, other shit going on. I'm like, okay, I don't, you know, fair warning, like going once, going twice. And I went and got these two other guys who had sort of a hot restaurant at the, at the time. Um, and that I knew a little bit from, and we formed a partnership to do that outside. That was the first time I'd ever done anything outside of working with Will. Um, we got asked at the Lambs Club to work with the Zakarians, Jeffrey's of you know, a famous, he's much more famous chef now than he was then, but his wife had worked with us at Lotus and when they got married, they got offered the Lambs Club and they thought it was a little too much for them to take on on their own. Um, There's a three floor venue with a big bar and so they asked us to work with them on that. Um, but once Will left the business seven years ago to work in unbelievably uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation, um, which is, I'm only saying unbelievably, because we used to tease his wife, who's one of my close friends as well, that, you know, she's creating a vertical monopoly because, you know, we'll, we'll create the problem, you'll fix it, and we'll ha, ha, ha. But he really, he really took it to heart as her business started to grow and he saw the, the real need for it. Um, and he's very much, uh, in, Will's very interested in construction and in building things and in uh, business planning. And he started to help them as they decided to build their first inpatient facility in Massachusetts. And he came to me one day and said, look, I love being up there. I love fishing. I love hunting. I love uh, running in the woods. I love skiing. He goes, I'm leaving New York. I'm going to go run this place. I'm like, what? I mean, we'd been working together for over 20 years. So, but there was no, it wasn't like we were having a fight. He was just changing his life. It was like Will 3.0. So I had a wasn't much I could say. I'm like, congratulations, you know? And he's like, I want to spend more time with my wife. I want to help people. I want to live, well, you know, all I can say was good luck, basically. So, um, and we're still great friends, you know? But so everything I do now going forward, I have to figure out 
who's the right partner for it. Um, thankfully, at the Skylark, I the Skylark is a is a rooftop on in the heart of the Garment District, and it, the guy who had started to build it, uh, who owns the building, uh, I met him through happenstance, and he asked me to read his business plan, and I read it, and I thought it was really off base, um, and I I you know it, I had no interest in it. I in a, I mean. I had no motive. I just, he just said, what do you think? And I explained to him why I thought it wasn't going to work. And, you know, you could hear all the air go out of the guy. And he asked me what I would do. And I explained how I would approach it again, just as a hypothetical. I, and then we hung up and uh, he called me back a few days later and he goes, I can't stop thinking about what you've said. I think I'd rather work with you than the guy I was supposed to do it with. And I was kind of in shock and I'm looking around like, am I in candid camera? Cause he said, I'll fund the whole thing. I just want you to run it. And that's when I was like, Okay. And he introduced me to a guy named Jim Kirsch who runs a huge catering company called Abigail Kirsch Catering. They do all Chelsea Piers and they're really arguably either the first or second best known catering company in New York. Um, and we partnered up to do the Skylark. And so now Jim and I are doing two more, two to three more projects together. Um, this kind of model we've developed kind of call it nightlife for grownups where we do these sophisticated rooftop bars and then there's an event component. And, uh, you know, he's taught me a lot about the event business, although I would not say I know it, you know, don't ever let me run your wedding. Like, I'm not that guy. Um, but I've taught him everything about sort of the bar lounge nightlife business. And so we work very well together. Uh, he's really an ego-free, smart, wonderful guy who just wants to go back to Connecticut at the end of the day. Um, so... Each place that, you know, with Cafe Clover, I have other partners and we're doing two more projects, actually three more projects together. And they're, so each place um, I try that comes up for me, I mean, unless the, sometimes they come up for the other guys and they're nice enough to ask me, but um, each place that's come up for me, I try and sit back and say, okay, who's the right strategic partner for this? Because I can't do all of it myself. I don't have a partner anymore, like the one partner anymore. Tyler's too young for me to pull out of college, although I think about it all the time. <laughs> um, because he's, you know, he's become remarkably self-assured uh, and confident in introducing himself to people and handling himself really, really well. And I could, I don't necessarily want to curse him with this business because there's so many downsides of this business. I mean, it looks great from the outside. Like, you know, it looks like you just get to walk around. And, we talk about some of those downsides. Uh, sure. I mean, some of the misconceptions that from well, the, the, the restaurant business. Yeah, I mean, the biggest misperception right now, and probably for the last ten years, is that you know politicians and um, the public thinks that you're just you know rolling in dough if you own a restaurant, and the margins are so so thin, and people really forget how high the failure rate is. Um, you know, they 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 may have a favorite couple, three or four restaurants that they've been going to for 15 years and they think everyone's like that, but they forget how many places that they've tried and then they go back a year later and it's gone. And that's really, you know, it's a huge failure. I don't know what the exact number is, is it 80% in the first five years or something, but it's a huge failure rate and it's getting much more difficult. Um, and what is being missed by politicians and what you see going on is that the rise, and far be it for me to argue against everyone earning a living wage, but the impact of going to $15 that has had a huge impact on the restaurant industry because now it's, you really have to pay 18 or 19 because someone can just get 15. They can just go work at Starbucks and get a better health plan or whatever. So it's not 15. It's, and so that's great for society that people are earning that kind of money. On the other hand, the unintended consequence is there are fewer 
jobs because you can't afford that extra host, that extra manager, that extra two servers. Um, so you just don't hire them. And I mean, I know a place that, you know, they hot, they, they built, it's, we could never do this one of our places, but they built a beer wall and you like buy like almost like a Metro card and you get a glass and like they built it as sort of a gimmick, right? Like how much fun is this? You put 40 bucks on a card or whatever and you, whatever beer you want to sample, you just put your card in the wall and you go to that thing. But the real thing is it cut out six servers for them, you know, because it sort of killed two birds with one stone. They had a great marketing gimmick, but on the other hand, that's six servers they don't have to hire. And so that, and the next level of this is this movement, which is, you know, eight states passed it, two repealed it, thank gosh. Um, there is some movement to do it in New York, which is insane because people just don't really understand, to eliminate what's called the tip credit, which is, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but basically tipped employees I think are at $10 right now instead of 15 um, because the presumption is that they're making so much money from tips. Uh, I believe the last time the New York City Hospitality Association studied 14,000 New York City uh, servers or bartenders, they're making on average $25 an hour because of tips with their, with their wage. There's a movement to do away with the tip credit, which would, which would cost each restaurant for every full-time employee, for each server or each bartender that's a full-time person, $12,000 per employee. And you take a little place like Cafe Clover, let's, call, let's say we have 20 full-time employees who are bartenders or, or servers. That's $240,000. We're out of business. Like, it's a little restaurant. We can't do that. Like, we're negative at that number. So it's well intended. It sounds great on paper. Celebrities sign up for it. Like, oh, yeah, everyone should get, you know, but they're, you know, it's not like this is a diner off Route 7 somewhere where someone's making, literally making $10 an hour and then at the end of the night scraping together $30 in tips and can't pay their rent. These people are making in New York two, three, four hundred $400 a night, um, which is fantastic. And they've chosen it because they've chosen this lifestyle because they want to act, they want to paint, they want to dance, they want to go to school, they create jewelry, whatever it is that they've chosen that they need this kind of lifestyle where they only need, they can only work three, four nights a week or a couple of shifts a week because they want to pursue what it is that they want to pursue. Fantastic. That's what we're there, you know, sort of a mutually beneficial arrangement. If that goes away, I think you're going to see a lot of closures or a lot of places cutting back to half the staff and f making people do two, three times the level of work because there's just no way that small mom and pop restaurants can afford that. So I don't know where it's going. That's why I, I joked about time. I mean, he's got three more years of college, but we have so many projects coming in the next, I think we have somewhere between, depending if they all actually happen, somewhere between six and eight things coming in the next year. I literally can't do it all. So I, and I have great partners, but to just even go check in on all of them, I, I'm either going to have to hire someone who I really feel great about um, or, or tell Tyler to come to school in New York and, and, and do it with me. We'll see. Are there any big other fields other than the restaurant business that you hope to one day kind of venture out to? I mean, the natural progression for, for me, you know, some people go into real estate because they figure out a way to buy the buildings that they're in, but we've never really been afforded that opportunity. We've always been in buildings that were unapproachably expensive. Um, no one was looking to sell in the meatpacking district when we were there. That would have been a, you know, uh, 
the, the only area that seems to be potentially um, uh, possible for me is some stuff within the entertainment world. The, the, some of the stories I told you about Russia are currently owned by Hulu, being developed by a production company in concert with Hulu. We'll see if they actually make it. Um, it, it sounds like a movie to me. Yeah, it's definitely a movie or a TV show. There's no question. I mean, there's, I only told you one twentieth of the stories. And, you know, um, so I'm hoping that happens. And I've been working with uh, my brother-in-law, Irv Gotti, who's famous for Murder, Inc., which is, you know, Ja Rule and Ashanti and things like that. He has a show on BET called... Um, uh, why am I forgetting the name of a show at this minute right now? Um, Tales, I'm sorry, called Tales, where he's taken uh, each year, he's taken um, last year's eight, I think this year was 12, of the most iconic songs in hip-hop and turned them into hour-long stories. But Irv and I have developed this really great rapport over the years, and he's got, he's he, his company's called Visionary Ideas, and he truly is a visionary, and he's got seven or eight ideas, some for f- movies, some for sitcoms, um, and over the years, one of the great things about doing what I do, probably one of the best things is I've been able to meet people from a really diverse uh, field. Uh, I kind of can get to any, almost anybody. I'm kind of one phone call away from it, almost anybody. And because I do have the law background and um, I don't come across as just, I hope I don't come across as just someone who's always asking for favors, et cetera. But there's substance there. I mean, the Russian story, those are real. So when I first asked some people to help me get interviews in Hollywood or conversations going in Hollywood, people were like, oh, okay, whatever. David's nice to me. I'll, I'll help him. But then when I got to tell these stories, I could see the expressions on some of the production companies' faces like, holy shit, what? This is better than any stuff we make up. I'm like, yeah, and it, I know. And it really happened. Um, so similarly with Irv, you know, he's got some really tremendous ideas, but he didn't really know how, how to go about getting them made necessarily. Um, so I've been able to say, well, look, if you're going to want pursue sitcoms, you should really sit with this guy. Who's a guy I happen to go to college with, and they've had they've gotten on along famously, and they're working on two, they're trying to produce two shows together right now. Um, another friend of mine created Narcos, uh, and now has a show on the air called Godfather of Harlem. And so I introduced Irv to Chris because Irv has an idea for a movie that I think Chris would be absolutely perfect to write, and and Irv Irv is completely taken with Chris, and vice versa because um, Irv is such a character. So. I'm hoping that I end up being a small part of the production of all this stuff that Irv is working on. And then I'm assuming and I'm hoping that can kind of leverage off that. And if we actually get two or three things made that I can say, oh, I'm a producer on that, then it's a different conversation the next time I have a good idea. Then I can, my next conversation with someone in LA is, well, I produced X, Y, and Z. Um, so we'll see. Did you ever imagine now about 30 years ago when you first made that career change that you'd be sitting here with these 30 years of, of stories and experiences <laughs> in life? You know, it, it wasn't really a plan. Um, it was really, uh, I did not imagine it uh, in the sense that, the you know, I think one of the best things and one of the worst things about being young is, necess- is I mean, there's some people who are so supremely directed when they're 22 or 18 or 27. They know exactly... We weren't, um, you know, we were just, it was really, it was more of a, um, an antidote to how unhappy we were, you know, and we were trying to figure out how do we capitalize on what we're good at. And what we were good at at the time was, you know, we felt that we were, we were, we were 
smarter than a lot of the people who we figured we were trying to do what we were trying to do. Um, we weren't necessarily, you know, we didn't realize how many super smart guys were working in the restaurant industry, you know, and how hard it was. We were naive about how difficult it was. Um, but we were right that we were able to attract a really interesting, fascinating, diverse, and really nice crowd. Like we're still really friends with so many of the people that we met during those days. And, you know, I used to play Saturday afternoon touch football with half of our customers, you know, and I had a poker game that we started at Lotus that I still play into in today. Um, with some amazing guys, the guys who write, who writes billions and, you know, all these fascinating guys who weren't necessarily that guy 20 years ago. They were like going to be there, but now they're there. And, uh, so it's it, on that level, it's been great. What's the, if you could give a piece of advice to your 28 year old self, knowing what you know now today, what would it be? I would have, I think we did it a little backwards. Um, I think we should have worked for somebody in the industry for a year or two before we opened our own place. But we were full of piss and vinegar and we were really eager to get it into the field. But I really, I think we would have benefited by spending a year or two working for someone really hard-nosed and really experienced and then opened and been, because we we really just opened on the strength of, well, we know everybody, we can do this. Um and we were right. We filled the room right, but we didn't. We didn't know what we were doing business wise. It took. So we paid basically for grad school. Like Rex was basically like grad school. Like we lost money, but it was a tremendous education, and it sort of stamped us to the public as like, oh, these guys are guys we want to bet on. I'm curious, also, um, you know, in reading a bunch of the articles and, and interviews with you, uh, and and knowing Tyler, you know, I, I think. It's so clear, you know, I've, I've known you just for a short while, but your love is so strong for him. And I'm wondering how being a father has changed you, maybe as a person, as a business, how you manage, you know, work with family and how that kind of changed your life. Um, well, uh, Ty is my guy. Like, you know, there's nothing... I've always, I was in love with Tyler before he was born. You know, I imagined I would always be a dad and hoped that I would be so lucky as to have a son like Tyler. And he's far beyond what I imagined he would, you know, I could ever be so proud as to have as a, as a kid. And, you know, it's funny, people that, people through all stages of Lotus and other places all know Ty. It's very weird for him because, you know, my desk was plastered with photos of him. I used to bring him up to the office when he was two and three and four years old. Um, uh, what's interesting about that is that, you know, I, he can understand it now. I would never have told him when he was younger, but you know, when 2008 really crushed us, like, um, we had to sell almost all our places at a loss. We didn't really have a job, literally didn't really have a job. My dad was still alive and he was encouraging me to like interview for other fields. Um, you know, but I knew the Lambs Club was being built. It was under construction and Jimmy was being built. And so I just kind of had to hold on um, as best I could waiting for them to open because I knew once they opened, we'd be back to good or at least on the road to good. So the terrible news was we were really suffering financially. And now, of course, you don't want to let that impact your family. And, you know, Nikki was working. My wife was working at the time, thankfully. And uh, but um Ty, what was good about it in a weird way was I got to spend a great deal of time at home with Ty at a really fun age. You know, he was seven, eight, whatever. So I could go to to the 
to PS 87 and shoot hoops for two hours and not worry that I wasn't at a meeting. Um, so at a really crucial time in his life, I think, and a really, really great time to be a parent, um, I got to spend a, a really great extra amount of time with him. So in a weird way, that terrible period in New York from, let's call it, end of 2007, early 2008 to 2010, when things sort of started to come back, um, crushed me financially, uh, um, but allowed me to spend an amazing amount of time with with Tyler. So um, it's it's definitely... It was hard in the early years of Lotus. It was very hard on my wife because Tyler was born almost exactly when Lotus opened. So my sleep schedule was completely fucked up and I would get home at four. I'd have to watch ESPN for an hour just to, you know, come down. And then I needed to sleep till 11 or 12. And so it was really hard on Nikki to do everything and she was amazing at it. Um, But then also, again, I didn't have to go back to work necessarily right away. So I got to spend a little time with him at that time. And, and I'm just lucky. Look, I'm just lucky. He's got a great moral compass and came out the way he did, you know, to wrap things up. What do you hope to, uh, what do you hope your legacy is in, in the long run? I mean, you hope, you know, hopefully another long, long life, but yeah. what do you hope when it's all said and done? Uh, I think most important, I mean, there's some, there's definitely some things I'd like to check off the box that, that I, that I can accomplish that I, you know, like this Hollywood thing has been frustrating because, this story has been circulating in LA for a few years with a few different networks. Um, uh, and I'd like to see it get made because whenever I tell the stories, people are kind of like, how is that not a movie? Um, but at the end of the day, to answer your more, your question more philosophically, I'd like to be, you know, when it's all said and done, people to think I was decent. Um, you know, our, our business relies on the, on, it's a people business, you know, it's not like just inventing a product and then getting it out there. Like we're every day is interacting with so many people. And I, to be honest, the thing that drives me the craziest right now about my job is that between the four places we have in New York, soon to be more, and then the three places that I consult on in the Venetian, um, uh, I cannot remember. It's not like Lotus or Union Bar. I knew everyone's name. I knew their girlfriend's name and their wife's name, their mom, whatever. They're, you know, I hate walking into work and having someone say, hey, David, and I don't know their name. I mean, obviously I know them, but I cannot right now keep track. And it drives me insane because I think that that's, that in, in, that it takes a direct chunk of who I think I'd like to be as a person. I want to know who everyone is that works with us. I want to treat them with as, you know, the respect they deserve. They work so hard for us. Um, they all have their own dreams and their own goals, and I want to see them achieve those. And it drives me nuts that I walk into our place and someone that I've seen for a year says, hey, David, what's up? And I'm like, oh, shit, you know. So I don't know. I get the idea of the day, if I was going to be really, you know, think about that, I would like that I, the people that worked with us or encountered me or somehow said, at the end of the day, he's a good guy, you know. So I hope. Are there any... For the people to to stand by and and on waiting for for the projects to be built, um, do you want to give a little plug and let people know what they should be looking for in the in the next couple of months and years? Uh, sure. Um, uh, the ones that I could talk about right now that aren't there's two or three that are like I, I wouldn't say embargoed. That's overly fancy, but just they're with developers who aren't ready to announce yet. So I you know got to be I got to be respectful of their own PR plan, but. Um, Doing a high-end, well, we're hoping it's going to be the Indochine of Indian food with a friend of my name, Manish uh, Goyal, who's a tremendous guy in the marketing world, um, who's decided he wanted to open 
the approachable, cool, accessible version of Indian food. Um, and we've got an amazing space next to Gramercy Tavern that should open, we think, around March. Um, it's under construction now. And with that same group and with this amazing guy, excuse me, named Sam Ross, who owns Attaboy down in uh, the Lower East Side and is perennially ranked in the top five of the bar bar bars in the world, um, we're redoing a place called Temple Bar. Uh, right basically diagonally across from Kith on on um, Lafayette and, and Bleecker. And then uh, through with my Cafe Clover guys, we're doing um, a place called American Bar, uh, which will be a restaurant featuring sort of all those classics that you love, but hopefully done at an elevated level um, on Greenwich Ave. And we're also doing the food and beverage for um, uh, a place called The Well, which is basically like the Soho House of Wellness. It's a health and wellness. It's, it's not really a spa. It's more of a lifestyle venue. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a private club on Union Square, and we're doing all their food and beverage. And lastly, we are going back full circle to our conversation when I was walking here. We're, we are doing something in Brooklyn near Nevin Street. Um, there's just solidifying it, but there's a hotel that looks like it's going to get built uh, with a small rooftop pool um, off the Nevin Street stop. They haven't named it yet, but uh, so I will be coming out here a little bit, um, probably about 16 months from now. Beautiful. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on my, my show. I could listen. Pleasure. I could listen to these uh, these Russia stories and and hopefully many many more. Um, no, but it's 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 truly been a pleasure, and uh, we have we have some tennis to take care of. So when you when you come to Brooklyn in the in that time, we'll uh, we'll, we'll get do our some matches tennis. In. And I get, look, I no one goes up three one on me and ping pong and escape. So, so uh, I'm, I'm coming for you. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. My pleasure. My pleasure.